I don't know about you guys. I think I can speak for you guys. I'm super thankful for our worship team here at Windsor Community Church. I think they do a great job. So thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship through song. <clears throat> Good morning and welcome to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us for your first time this morning, you probably don't know who I am. I'm Chad. I'm the pastor in training here. Um, I think someday soon to be a pastor here. Uh, let's continue to worship God through the preaching and the hearing of his word. Uh, join me in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning humbled in worship and adoration, declaring your praises, acknowledging who you are, and praying that you would protect us from our own lethargic apprehensions of you. Pray that you would use me, your servant, this morning to preach your word to your people and those who aren't yet your people. And that I would be faithful to the text and that as those here hear your word, that they would hear the voice of their shepherd calling them to, to himself and to more Christ-likeness. We love you, Lord, and we need you and acknowledge that apart from you, we can do nothing. So, by your spirit, be here with us and Shape us into the image of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. So we're continuing our series through the book of Luke this morning. We've titled our sermon series, The Gospel of Luke, The Upside-Down Kingdom. And our text, as you heard, just read, is Luke 2, 39 through 52. Some of you have, may have seen the title of the sermon in the newsletter it's kind of hard to see. It's over on the right side, and I don't know how many of you open the newsletter. And I know a sermon title um, in the scheme of life is not the most important thing, but uh, I, we we're supposed to give our sermon titles on Wednesday midday, and uh, I gave it, and it, the original title was The Man Who Saves Men. But after three more days of studying and wrestling with the text, I think I would change the title to um, The Son of Mary, The Son of God. I want to start with a true story about two well-known baseball players. Some of you have probably heard of them, even if you don't like baseball, like me, I've heard of them. It's a story involving Yogi Berra, the famous catcher for the New York Yankees, and Hank Aaron, the famous power hitter originally for the Milwaukee Braves. These two teams were playing against each other in the 1957 World Series. And I don't know how many of you have ever been involved in sports, but a pretty common thing in sports is trash-talking each other. In hockey, we call it chirping each other. And so Hank Aaron comes up to the plate, and Yogi Berra starts chirping him. He says, Hank, you're holding the bat wrong. The trademark and the writing is on the bottom. You need to turn the bat so you can read the trademark and the writing. Hank doesn't listen to him. Hank, come on, you're holding the bat wrong. you got to turn it around. You have to see the trademark in the writing. First pitch, Hank Aaron hits a bomb over the left field wall. Runs around the bases, stops at home plate, and says, Yogi, I came here to hit baseballs, not to read. <laughs> Hank Aaron knew who he was and what he came to do. As we will see is true of Jesus Christ, even at 12 years old. 
we will see this morning that Jesus' identity as the Son of God dictated his mission as the Son of Mary. He knew who he was, and he knew what he came to do. We do well this morning first to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and to praise him for accomplishing his mission, and to remember that as Christians, our identity should dictate our mission in life. So often we're told, whether it's by our culture or just wrong thinking, that we are what we do. I remember feeling this way before I was a Christian. I was an athlete, and that's who I was. But to be honest, even as Christians, we can struggle with that. I'm an aspiring pastor, someday a pastor, but that's not going to be who I am. If you're a doctor, a nurse, a stay-at-home mom, that's what you do, but it isn't who you are. As Christians, we are sons and daughters of God. That's who we are, and what we do flows from that, namely living for God's glory. He'll call us to many various things, as I've said. I want to acknowledge about this text also. This is a hard text, isn't it? I remember reading this. I told the, the preaching collective guys, we, we practice our sermons on Fridays and get feedback, and I told them, I remember reading this as a young Christian, and it really disorienting me. Does this text teach Jesus sinned, or Jesus was unrighteous, or he did wrong to his parents? And the short answer is no. In, in case you fall asleep from here on out, the answer is no. But I would say, for those of you here who, who aren't Christians, you don't know what you believe about the Bible, or maybe even you know what you believe about the Bible, that it's a made-up book by humans, I just would humbly say, I, I actually think this text is evidence that this is not made up by humans, because if it was, this story wouldn't have made the Bible, because it is disorienting. There's a way to understand it, and I'm going to do my best, but I think that this is, shows the authenticity that God is the ultimate author of this book. So let me give you guys some quick context before we dive in, through our Advent series in December, and last week we have preached through the first two chapters of Luke. Luke started by saying that he was writing to Theophilus, and for us as well, and he was writing an orderly account. You guys remember that from last week, that, that Theophilus and us could have certainty about Jesus Christ and the upside-down kingdom that Jesus has ushered in. After that, we read the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah and Mary telling them that they would be parents of John and Jesus, and they both respond by praising God. Then Jesus is born, and the angels appear to the shepherds, you know the famous Christmas story, and tell them about Jesus' birth, and the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Then in the next scene, we see Jesus presented in the temple, and these two characters, Simeon and Anna, praise God and testify who, to who Jesus is. And that leads us to the text this morning. And I've structured it around two main ideas. First, we'll see Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, in verses 39 and 40. And then we'll see Jesus, the son of God, in verses 41 through 52. So first, let's look at Jesus as the son of Mary and Joseph. We see in this text his parents' faithfulness to God. Before verse 39, Jesus and Mary and Joseph are in the temple 
obeying the law of purification that Mary had to obey after childbirth, and the consecration of the firstborn son. And actually before that scene, before they go to the temple, we read that eight days after Jesus' birth, he's circumcised, which was required according to the law. So then we come to verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, even as a baby, and his parents had to help him. Matthew 5, 17, and when Jesus is an adult, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus left heaven and came to earth to do what Adam and Israel could not and did not do, obey the law, personally, perfectly, and perpetually. That's why he's known as the second Adam or the true and better Adam, like we just sang in that song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. He's also known as the true Israel. Such a big part of Jesus' humanity is that for a time, the law had to be obeyed for him by his faithful parents. He couldn't say at eight days old, mom and dad, take me to get circumcised. I have to obey the law. Or a few weeks later, mom and dad, you need to take me to the temple and consecrate me since I'm a firstborn son. Jesus had faithful parents who were obedient to the Lord and they were given to him by God, the father. The father's providence in his life was for him to have faithful parents. So, friends, it does us no good to speculate, well, what if he didn't have faithful parents? He did. It was God's plan that he would have Mary and Joseph as his parents, and they would be faithful, obedient Israelites. There's no other way it could have happened, because God is in control. I think that gives us an opportunity, first, to be thankful that Jesus had faithful parents. That really hit me this week. Wow. If it wasn't for his parents, he wouldn't have obeyed the law perfectly because they had to circumcise him at eight days old and consecrate him at 40 days old. I'm thankful for Mary and Joseph. I think we should, you guys should be as well. But it's also an opportunity for us to be thankful for our own faithful parents who helped us learn the ways of God. I know for many of us who grew up under faithful parents, we may not remember all the specific things they taught us about God. We may not have one conversation or event in mind. But we remember their faithfulness over 18 years to tell us things like we go to church on Sundays. My dad said that to me all the time. I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if you're not going to pay attention. As long as you live under my roof, we're going to church on Sundays. And even as a younger kid, when we were in one church, we went to what we called house church on Wednesday nights, basically small group or community group. Those are things that my parents impressed upon me. My mom also recited to me Jeremiah 29, verse 11. From, my, from the time I have a memory of my mom teaching me the ways of God, I remember Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. And I know some Bible nerds in here, and I'm a Bible nerd, will say, well, that's ripped out of context. That's for Israel, and they're about to go into suffering in Babylon. And I would say, 
Respectfully, the Lord still has plans for his children for good and not evil, for a future and a hope, even if that means hard things, hard circumstances. That was really impressed on me as a young man. For those of you who didn't grow up with parents who were faithful to God and to teach you the things of God, if they were loving and supportive, you can still thank God for the gift that they were to you. And I can remind you that if you are a Christian and you don't have Christian parents, God was faithful to bring you to himself by other means. And it may be his will to give you kids and you can be that faithful parent who teaches your kids the things of God. So Jesus' parents were faithful. And from an infant until 12 years old, we have one verse that describes his life. And here we see his, his growth from a baby to a boy, and it's verse 40. This is when they've gone back to Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. It's not far-fetched to believe that Mary and Joseph had taught their son the Bible. They didn't just practice their religion at the various feasts, but they were gathered around the scriptures often. It can be expected that they taught Jesus the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes." And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It can be expected that Mary and Joseph taught Jesus diligently the words of God. It's an amazing thought. The infinite God becoming an infant. The omniscient one growing, becoming strong. The law giver becoming the law obeyer. But it makes sense because he wasn't just God. He's also a man. He came as a man. He had a human nature and a human body. And Luke tells us, as he told Theophilus, Jesus wasn't just divine, nor was he just a human. He is the divine man. We see it here in the text this morning. We're going to see it all over Luke and all over all the Gospels and the whole Bible. He is the eternal God who took on a human body and a human nature, so he grew he learned how to apply what he had been taught, and God's favor was upon him. The word favor there is the Greek word for grace. God's grace was upon him. Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity. He is God. He's always existed. He's eternal. And the Trinity has always been eternally happy in one another, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we will see the favor and grace of the Father bestowed on his Son in the next chapter, in Luke chapter 3, at Jesus' baptism. The Father says, after he's baptized, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The love and favor and grace that Jesus had with the Father is unlike any other mere human had. In fact... Ephesians 2 teaches us that all mankind, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, are children of wrath. A 
That's what God's word says. Apart from Jesus Christ, every human is a child of wrath, and it says a son of disobedience. At one point, Jesus even tells the Pharisees they are of their father, the devil. And friends, especially to those of you who don't follow Jesus, the only way to find favor with God is through Jesus Christ. Could we call him the son of obedience through repentance and faith in him? We don't look to ourselves. We don't look to our good deeds, our relative morality. We can be prone to do that, can't we? Well, I'm not like Adolf Hitler. Like, I'm pretty good compared to Adolf Hitler or even compared to my bum neighbor. God's word tells us that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. There's no amount of good that we can do to earn our way to heaven, friends. We look to Jesus Christ, and that's how we find favor with the Father, through belief in him. But God uses means. Jesus had wonderful, faith-filled parents. And as a human, he grew up under their love and care. And 12 years later, we read a story about, as my pastor friend put it, the lost boy in the right place. So let's look at that scene in verses 41 through 52. We look at Jesus, the Son of God. 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, of the Passover, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Sorry, I read an extra verse there. The Passover was one of three yearly feasts that the Israelites would travel to Jerusalem for. This feast was the yearly reminder of God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. Many of you know the story. God sent 10 plagues on Egypt. And the last one being the death of the firstborn. God commanded Israel to take a male lamb without blemish, a perfect male lamb, and sacrifice it. And take some of its blood and put it on the sides of the doorframe and on the top of the doorframe. And God would pass through the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn of Egypt, it says, of man and beast. But when he saw the sacrificial blood on the doors of the Israelites, he would pass over them and not kill the firstborn. The gospel foreshadowing in that is amazing, I think. And so Jesus and his family are in Jerusalem for the Passover. It says, as they were every year, another reminder of Mary and Joseph's faithfulness. One scholar said that the population of Jerusalem at that time was probably 20 to 30,000. But during the feast of Passover, there would be 150,000, about more visitors to the city of Jerusalem. That's a lot of people to add to a small city. That's a lot of sacrificial lambs and a lot of blood everywhere. Imagine what the true Lamb of God was thinking and feeling as he walks into this city, knowing what's coming for him 18 years later. So the feast ends, and we read verses 43 through 45. And when the feast was ended, they, 
as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Careful Bible study is always important, but especially in this difficult and potentially disorienting text. Remember, Jerusalem is packed with around 150,000 more people than normal. And the text doesn't say Jesus' parents told him, come on, Jesus, we're leaving. And he said, no thanks, I'm not going to obey. The text doesn't say that. Verse 44 is very helpful for us here. It says they supposed him to be in the group. Now, it's not sinful to suppose, but it just shows that neither of his parents confirmed that Jesus got the memo. It's not prudent for me and Audrey and and Krista and Mitch Hardy to suppose that Zeke and Callie and Oliver and Callahan are, are chilling quietly after the service doing Sudokus here. They're, they're the kids running around, almost taking out your knees, spilling your coffee. We're like, oh, watch those elderly people. It's not good for us to suppose that our kids aren't acting like five- and three-year-olds. <clears throat> also, it says that they supposed him to be in the group. It's important to know that most people would travel with large groups. You'd probably call it a caravan. Friends and family and neighbors and many people from their hometown. So maybe Mary assumed Joseph had talked with Jesus and Joseph assumed Mary had talked with him. Apparently, it's still a somewhat common thing to leave your child somewhere. Raise of hands, anyone who's ever done that? First service, we had some brave people. There's one brave person. There's a couple. Yeah, I, it, apparently, it, yep, Calvin reminded you of the time. Yeah. <laughs> my, my best friend is a pastor at our sister church in Fort Collins, the Crossing Church, Daniel Smith. He has five precious kids. And a few months after they had their fifth kid, a little boy, Cortland, we had a church event afterwards that Daniel and his wife, Michelle, weren't staying for, but Audrey and I were. And we're chatting and laughing, and then all of a sudden we look to our right, and Cortland's sitting there next to us in his car seat. And we're like, I think Daniel and Michelle left like 10 minutes ago. And as we're laughing, like I'm literally laughing at my best friend, I'm getting a phone call, and Daniel Smith, and I answer, and he's like, hey, man, so is Cortland right there by you? (laughs) And I said, yep, he's right here, he's good, he's been happy, but I figured you left. And he's like, I thought Michelle put him in the car, she thought I put him in the car, and we left. And I was like, it's okay, dude, you got five kids, he's good. And they probably listened to this sermon because he's my best friend. So Daniel, Michelle, you're great parents. A lot of people in this body have left their kids behind, I'm probably going to do it someday too. So Mary and Joseph most likely stop for the night to camp, and they start looking for Jesus. And he's nowhere to be found. They look among all their relatives and their acquaintances. Nothing. Oops. We lost the Messiah. You know? (laughs) You thought Adam and Eve's like, oops, sorry, and heaven was going to be big? Like, if they really lost him, that was going to be a big, sorry, everyone, we lost him. Our bad. We had one job. 
All joking aside though, parents, could you imagine? I mean, if you've lost your kid for three minutes, it feels like three hours, it's terrifying. And they couldn't find him. And they'd already gone a day's journey away from Jerusalem on foot. So to help you understand what that would be like for us who drive, who live in 2023, that would be like us driving from here in Windsor to Boise, Idaho, 12 hours away and realizing, oh, forgot the kid and driving all the way back to Windsor, Colorado. And that's what they do. They rush back to Jerusalem as any parent would. (laughs) They love their son. They're scared. They want him. And verse 46 says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. There's debate as to whether he was found a total of three days after discovering he was missing or five days total. One day out, one day back, and then three days in Jerusalem. I actually was surprised at how, how many debates there were in the commentaries about this. And I mostly say, why does it matter? He was lost for a few days. It was really scary. And if you'll give me grace, I'd be prone to over-spiritualize it, potentially. Maybe it's true, but maybe it's over-spiritualizing and say, maybe it was three days total, foreshadowing the number of days that he would be dead for. But either way, he's found. And where is he found? In the temple. Not at his friend's house. Not at one of the pools in Jerusalem or the gardens. Maybe there was a theater there. He is in the place where scripture is taught and talked about. But more than that, we'll see that in a moment. Isn't it amazing? The humility, the one who created the teachers and whose spirit wrote the scriptures is now sitting under the men he created, listening and learning the scriptures that originated in his mind. That's humility. We can sometimes be so focused on Jesus as Lord and Savior that we forget he's also an example for us to follow. I'm not saying it's not important to focus on Jesus and, as Lord and Savior, but because he's Lord and Savior and his spirit enables us to try and live the way that he did. He is an example for us. So he's showing us the way of a citizen in his kingdom, how we should be people of the book. And we are here at Windsor Community Church. That's why we preach through books of the Bible. That's why community groups are going to gather and study the Bible, or at least Bible studies that point us to the Bible. Of course, we aren't Jesus. We'll never know the book the way he does. And we, we shouldn't read and study the book chiefly to be able to win arguments or to find principles that help us get rich or live comfortably. We can be devoted to reading and studying this book because we want to know him. We want to love him and be reminded of his love and learn more and more how we can obey him and glorify his name. We can say along with Jesus, we can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Middle schoolers, you're not off the hook. Jesus is 12 years old in this scene. Isn't it providential that I'm the middle school leader preaching the only text in the Bible of Jesus as a middle school-aged kid? This is for you guys, too. You don't have to wait till you're an adult to take your faith seriously. I remember thinking that as a kid, like, 
I'll just take it seriously. Like right now, I've got this free pass because mom and dad are Christian, so I'm kind of like a grandchild Christian, the father. You can take it seriously now. You can grow in your wisdom and your understanding of the scriptures. And if you need help, it's okay to ask your parents. It's okay to ask me, hey, how, how should I go about reading and studying the word of God? You can grow in wisdom now, and middle schoolers, I'm calling you to do that, to follow Jesus as an example. But for all of us, I mean, all of us can grow in our understanding of God through his word. We'll never know it like Jesus, maybe not even like 12-year-old Jesus. Look at verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. Here again is evidence of his deity. Even at 12, his understanding of the scriptures and the kingdom of God were amazing. People were amazed. So there he is in the temple. And finally, his parents find him there. Verses 48 and 49. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Finally, an angry sigh of relief issues from Mary. You could probably relate when you found your kids. But here, I believe, is the heart of this passage, and there's a couple things for us. First, yes, Mary and Joseph are upset, and they feel mistreated. But miscommunication is not always evidence of sin. And we married folk do well to remember that. There's a lot of miscommunication in the marriage. But that doesn't always mean that we have sinned against one another. <clears throat> Mary was a fallible, sinful human being whose feelings were legitimate, but not necessarily indicative of wrongdoing. We know based on other texts of scripture that Jesus is sinless. He did no wrong. He perfectly obeyed the law, including the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And Jesus answers his mother, I believe, graciously. And I tried to reflect that as I read it. He's, he, the son of Mary and Joseph is teaching his parents that he is chiefly the son of God. He wonders why they would have been looking for him and that they should have known where he would be. I don't believe his tone was condescending. And I think we'd be prone to agree. Based off of Jesus' birth announcement from Gabriel, the last 11 years of being raised under faithful parents, it seems Mary and Joseph would have understood more of who Jesus was and what he came to do. So when Mary says, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, Jesus responds, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Another translation would say about my father's business. This is a teaching moment for the 12-year-old son of God to teach his human parents about his awareness of his identity and his mission. And that his relationship to the father and his mission take priority over everything else. 
we may experience similar things as followers of Jesus, as Christians, namely, that our desire to honor God and obey his will may be misinterpreted by others as disrespect towards them. I think a perfect corporate example for us is, is what we call the fencing of the table during communion. We're gonna take, we take communion every Sunday here at this church. And whoever's leading what we call the communion meditation at some point is gonna, is gonna fence the table. And what that means is we tell you, and I'm telling you now, if you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. This is a church for you. You don't have to be a Christian to, to come and to, to learn and to see us worship. But we do believe that God's word clearly teaches that communion or the Lord's Supper is reserved only for believers. That as you're taking the bread and drinking the juice, you are remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood for you and for us as a church. And it says that this is not for the unbeliever. We are proclaiming Jesus died for me and he's coming again someday when we take this. And even for you Christians in here, I know that can sometimes be awkward, right? As the intern at the crossing, I remember the pastor saying that some people had come up and said, we know Christians in the body had come up and said, we know why you do this, but sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's a little awkward. You know, we're going to bring a friend to church, but then there's this awkward time in the service where we tell them, hey, this isn't for you. And I know our pastors feel the same way at Windsor Community Church, that, that our desire to honor the Father and obey his will may be misinterpreted as disrespect, and it's not meant to be that. But we must honor God first. I bet you guys can think of many other examples. Uh, I came from a party background and think of the friends who wanted me to come party with them after I got saved, and I said, hey, I, I'm, I'm not into that anymore. No disrespect. They felt disrespected. I wasn't a cool friend anymore, but I live for the honor of my father. I want to glorify him. You guys can think of many other personal examples, I'm sure. I think a second application for us, too, is this. Our kids, our own kids, belong more to our Heavenly Father than they do to us. And that's hard. And that's scary. Honestly, I'm a helicopter dad. Um, I'm, I'm around too much. I got my hands, white knuckles on my precious kids, and it's hard. I feel like it's a daily thing for me to remember. They belong more to God than they do to me. But I do, and you do well, to remember that God is a better parent than we are. He has a lot more control than we do. And, and what a joyful gift it will be to watch them desire to do the will of our Heavenly Father. That we can do our best to be faithful and to teach them the things of God, but in the end, they're in God's hands. So Jesus reminds his parents of who he is and what he's about. And verse 50 says, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. I think in our pride, we can think, come on, Mary and Joseph, how can you be so thick? Even as we continue through Luke and read the other gospels, we'll read of how the disciples of Jesus don't get it either often. And they don't understand what Jesus is saying and occasionally they act like idiots. But we have to remember, we're the same way. We don't always get it. God has to teach us the same lessons over and over and over. And I say praise God that he doesn't give up on us, that he's still working on us, that he will cause us to be more and more like Christ every day. 
And I really think that should actually be really encouraging for us as followers of Jesus. If the parents and the disciples of the Messiah don't always get it and needed to grow in their understanding, it's okay that we do too. We're all in process. And we don't have to attain a certain level of understanding before we can be called real Christians. We repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus, and we're a real Christian who's growing in our understanding of what it means to follow him. We're growing in our Christ-likeness. So after this interaction, we read verse 51, and when he went down with them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Again, we see the humility of Jesus, the one who created his parents, now submitting to them. And this doesn't imply that he was being unsubmissive earlier. Don't read that into the text. He obediently went home with them and continued to obey the fifth commandment and every other commandment. Now he got the memo. Now they said, okay, we found you. Come on, let's go home. And he said, okay, mom and dad, let's go home. And it says that Mary, his mother, treasured up all these things in her heart. This is almost exactly what Mary does when she hears from the angel Gabriel that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah. Look at Luke 2, 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary treasured her son. The interactions, the lessons, she meditated on him. And we can too. Brothers and sisters, what do you treasure? What do you often ponder in your heart? Has God given you spiritual eyes and spiritual taste buds to receive him as your greatest treasure? Do you love the gift of meditating on Jesus, who he is, what he did, and how to follow him, how to be like him? I hope and pray that you do and that we as a church would grow in that together. So the last verse before there's about an 18-year gap, and Jesus is about 30 years old in the next scene, is verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is very similar to verse 40, but this one says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor, again, the word grace, with God and man. Again, evidence of Jesus' true humanity. Yes, he is the eternal and infinite God, but he, came, he became a man, truly. And while he walked the earth, it seems he couldn't fit infinite knowledge inside of his human brain. But that's not to say, listen, hear me closely, I'm not saying he was never able to tap into his omniscience. When it was the will of the Father for Jesus to tap into his ability to know something, he would. We read scenes like that. He knew where Nathaniel was when no one was around Nathaniel. John says he he knew what was in men's hearts. No one had to say anything. But he still grew as a baby into a boy, as a boy into a man. 
So he grew in his wisdom, how to apply his knowledge as a human being. It makes sense that he grew in favor with man, though it wouldn't stay like that for everyone. But at age 12, many people saw his growth, and they were impressed by it. What a kid this is. But a 12-year-old isn't much of a threat to the religious leaders. 18 years later, his favor with them would dissolve into hatred, and they would be screaming, crucify him. But what about growing in favor with God? He's the perfect son. He has the favor of God already. We just read that in verse 40. Here's what I believe that means, even though it's still a bit of a mystery. Maybe God will do better explaining it in heaven than I do. Every act of obedience of Jesus in the will of the Father increased his already full favor with God the Father. And in how brightly or clearly he showed the world the character of God. He showed the, the, the character of God more clear when he was 30 than he did when he was one. He was just a baby. And so he was growing in favor with God. I think of another parenting illustration for us this morning. I love my three kids. Parents, you love your kids. They have your full favor. You adore them no matter what. But when they're obedient, when Zeke and Callie and Ada, even though she's a year and a half, are sharing with each other and they're not punching each other in the face, which they do a lot, they have favor. I, I'm overflowing with joy. They have my favor when they're being obedient. And they have my discipline when they're not. But they always have my full favor. I hope that helps. Maybe Matthew Henry can help us. He's a commentator. He says this about this verse. And he increased in favor with God and man. That is, in all those graces that rendered him acceptable to God and man. Herein... Christ accommodated himself to his estate of humiliation, meaning he became a man, that as he condescended to be an infant, and then a child, and a youth, so the image of God shone brighter in him when he grew up to be a youth than it did or could while he was an infant or child. Brothers and sisters, the same is true of us. When we repent, of our sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the full favor of God. Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God cares about our holiness and our obedience. Christianity is not a one-time belief with no implications. Friends, it is not a, I said the prayer when I was eight, and, and now I can live however I want. That is not Christianity. Christianity is a way of life. We evidence our salvation by our desire for holiness and obedience. And when we obey, there is joy. There is blessing. There is somehow more favor with God, experiencing his blessing as we obey, despite our circumstances. So don't hear me, I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel. I'm not saying if you obey right, then God owes you a big house and a new car and to cure your cancer. 
but we obey and receive the spiritual blessings of joy and knowing that we are living for God's glory and our lives are in his hands. Jesus knew who he was and what he came to do. As we get to the middle of the Gospels and towards the end, many times it says he set his face to Jerusalem. He knew what he was here for. And his identity as the Son of God dictated his mission as the Son of Mary. He is the God-man who came to seek and to save the lost and enable the lost who become found to a new way of living. A living where our identity dictates our mission. We aren't what we do, as the culture tells us. We are sons and daughters of the king whose mission is to do his will. And his will isn't this hard thing to find like we can talk about in our circles. I'm trying to find the will of God. There are some ways, yes, pray about the job you take and the person you marry. But this book tells us his will to believe in the one whom he has sent. And at the end of Matthew 28, to to teach others and to learn all that Jesus has commanded, which is this whole book. Come be a citizen of the kingdom. That's God's will for you. Believe in Jesus Christ and live for Jesus Christ and learn how to obey him. But we can only do that because he did it first. He's the God who became a man, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross in our place. Listen closely to Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. He didn't come to be an angel to save angels. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Listen to verse 17. Bold this in your mind. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus Christ doesn't just save us and then leave us to fend for ourselves. He is with us and able to understand what it's like to live in a fallen world. He can help us along the way because he's been along the way. So whatever we are going through, we can go to him. He can empathize. He was made like us so we could be made like him. He knew his identity, it dictated his mission, and his mission was successful. And so he enables us to have new identities, Christians, sons and daughters of the living God, that we can join him in his mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you again this morning. You are great and greatly to be praised. 
Lord, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to become a man. We're humbled at his humility to leave his throne in heaven and come to this world full of sin, suffering, and sickness and to die on a cross in our place and to bear your wrath for us. Lord, we declare and believe that he was raised again three days later and he is seated at your right hand. And because he came, uh, we can we can come to you through him, through faith in him. So, Lord, for any here who haven't repented of their sins and believed in you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself even now, that they would see you truly for who you are as Lord and Savior and King and treasure, and that you would give them a new heart and that they would believe. For those who are your people, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to motivate us to live as kingdom citizens, to remember who we are first and and how that dictates the way we live our lives and our mission in this life. We love you, Lord, so much. We thank you for this day and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.